I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Hilda Fernandez Alvarez, a Lacanian psychoanalyst in private practice in Vancouver, Canada. She has vast clinical experience in public and private settings in Mexico and Canada. She has a master's degree in clinical psychology and a master's degree in literature and is a PhD candidate in the Department of Geography at Simon Fraser University. With a research study on discursive spaces of trauma and healing within the mental health institution. She co-founded the Lacan Salon in 2007 and currently serves as its clinical director. She is an academic associate with the Institute for Humanities at SFU and leads a clinical seminar in Vancouver since the fall of 2015. She's published various articles on psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. For those who are listening on the Rendering Unconscious podcast stream, please note there is a video to accompany this discussion at YouTube. Just find Rendering Unconscious podcast at Trapart Films YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T film. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can also visit my website drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website renderingunconscious.org Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Thank you, Vanessa. This is so wonderful. I I have been listening to your um, podcast all the pandemic um time so it's very great to be here i have heard so many of the high esteem colleagues so i'm very honored to be here and um well i guess i'm gonna talk a little bit about my research i'm gonna talk about um yeah well starting with uh where i come from like um i come from mexico i have been in vancouver canada for about um 20 years this September, I, I'm 20 years here. And um, when I came here, I came with a master's in uh, clinical psychology. And I couldn't find any job. <laughs> so I got, I, I got into um, UBC to study literature. But then I'm a clinician at heart, right? Like I'm like 100% clinician, like I, it's my passion. So once that I was a little bit in the academia, I thought that I, I was missing the clinical practice. So I was lucky to start working um, in Vancouver Coastal Health, where I worked for 14 years, but no longer. I just finished my research there, which is about trauma and healing, the discourses um, about that. So, um, so then um, this kind of uh, background with, uh, with the literature, the clinical psychology, the clinical practice in both public and private uh, settings um, kind of 
got me this uh, curiosity of uh, trying to figure out, figure out how I'm going to approach the social from a psychoanalytic perspective, especially about the practice. Like how do you practice psychoanalysis in the social? No, it's like, a, it's, it's a, for me, it was like a major question and very difficult as well. The fact that um, in, in, this, in these years that I have been here, um, I had the pleasure to start the Lacan Salon, <laughs> which you, you interviewed two people already, Alois and Clint. And then um, it was very interesting because even though I was trying to get some clinicians, um, the majority of people that um, kind of consolidated the group were mainly academics, right? Tim Burnham, Paul Kingsbury, Jesse Crawford. And then all that um, kind of interdisciplinary um, sort of uh, uh, audience or constituency rather, uh, allow me to start thinking the social from the different perspectives of, of them. But it's still, I was not like satisfied, like, yeah, no, no, the, what about the practice of the, the practice per se, right? When I say practice of psychoanalysis, I'm referring to that, um, that ethical act that counts you as a subject in the subject matter that you are studying, right? Because if you use psychoanalysis from my perspective, just to understand a phenomenon without counting yourself, then it's really another theory, it's not psychoanalysis, right? It has to have this imminent critique. It has to have this um, question of the subject who is speaking, right? So uh, how to count the, the unconscious in the social? Um, I'm realizing uh, the limits of psychoanalysis, right? Especially with regards to, um, to the larger question of trauma, right? Like trauma is such a, um, yeah, it's a concept that I think we are gonna start to, to maybe focus more or we are going to start to have uh, to deal with uh, trauma in the next two decades uh, much more, right? Because the world that we are living, Vanessa, it's messy, right? Like uh, there's, there's, well, the climate change, the polarization, the post-truth, uh, all sorts of um, these aspects, the, the kind of the cyborgic uh, subjectivities, no? Mm -hmm. More and more, we are uh, forced to connect this way. Um, uh, digital, that I think is wonderful, but at the same time, we are losing a lot of other ways of collectively sustain uh, solidarious networks. And then those things, uh, in light of the kind of uh, totalitarian regimes that are starting to uh, advance all over the world, um, all the other things, the climate change, etc. I think that, um, yeah, trauma is going to be something that um, requires uh, an effort from different uh, perspectives. That's why, that's why I was telling you that um, I think that I kind of, uh, learning the limits of psychoanalysis, right? Because obviously I started um, kind of uh, my, uh, because I'm, I'm doing a PhD, uh, well, kind of a candidate, I'm writing my dissertation very slowly, people. Um, but uh, it's, it has been a wonderful experience, so wonderful, a little bit masochistic, if you ask me, because I got into trying to understand the system, the mental health system in Vancouver. And then I had to start with North America and Canada, Vancouver, the history, the economics. So it's, yeah, you, you kind of realize when you are doing this research, the complexity of systems. So anyways, this, um, this uh, uh, research has allowed me to see that um, when we deal with the unstable, which is the trauma, right? The unsayable of human experience, the, the outside of the symbolic, 
the real that occurs in people's life, then um, you have to um, kind of allow different epistemic uh, traditions to step in to uh to heal right because at the beginning i even was um joking with um the the ghent colleagues because i was um when i was doing my my research i, I spent some time in ghent um with uh, Stephen holland and all the um wonderful people in ghent paul ferrahe uh, matt desmond etc and then um I was, uh, at that time I was saying, yeah, we have to bring the Troy horse into the mental health institution, you know, like, like very um, warlike language, like let's, let's bring psychoanalysis as if that's the last word. It was kind of my, my thinking and then I'm just realizing um, yeah, there's probably the, the professional castration <laughs> that well in 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 the world that we live we need to learn to speak to each other from the kind of epistemic tradition from the knowledge that that you are kind of uh more trained or or grew up in to be able to um intervene with something so of kind of uh devastating effects you know like um like trauma and, and how to heal. I recently was attending, um, I would never do that before, but, uh, but um, I attended a, a summit on collective trauma organized by, um, yeah, it's a, it's a group of people that work uh, in California, I think is one, um, Thomas Hubel, I think is his name. Uh, he's a Jungian analyst or something, but I was very surprised with the quality of uh, the talks in the summit. Uh, I was very uh, interested in, in hearing different modalities. For example, there's uh, one um, Brazilian ethno-psychiatrist that worked with um, in the favelas uh, bringing, uh, he's not a psychoanalyst, bringing different modalities, including shamans and um, kind of uh, massage therapies and, and kind of uh, psychiatrists. So trying to, to help uh, people to develop a sense of collective solidarity and, and healing the, the, the experiences that, that they are suffering politically and socially. So I, I thought that, uh, for me, that was very inspiring. I got a crush on the guy. Professionally, I'm gonna go to Brazil as soon as the pandemic finishes because I really would like to um, learn a little bit more about that. And in, in that sense, let's say, in that sense of uh, treating trauma from um, perspective of different uh, modalities, I think that psychoanalysis has a very important point but not the last world, right? Because not everyone wants to talk about their trauma. And that's okay, no? They maybe need yoga, they maybe need Reiki, they, no, like that sort of thing. And uh, obviously what I am encountering in the mental health institution is that um, trauma is seen as, um, as a biological disorder right very poorly conceptualized and they offer that it's available in the majority of the mental health um, um, systems is uh, providing uh, psychoeducational manualized therapies that really do not allow to elicit uh, subjectivities empower um, narratives or connect with their sense of self over history you know so yeah that's that has been a little bit like um, my adventure in the phd which i hope to finish <laughs> soon and um yeah what else should i tell you about oh another thing that i have been thinking with um with regards to the 
this research is the, the, the difference between the engagement with uh, theory and the engagement with practice. No? Um, I, I wrote a paper about um, psychoanalytic critiques then and now referring to 1968 and I talk a little bit about Laborde uh, Hospital and how uh, Gattari who was like well with Deleuze then the kind of the masterminds about um, anti-Oedipus uh, how um, Gattari had already practiced uh, in Laborde he was kind of a key um, a person um, with John Ori um, uh, as well, like how, how they started this, um, this uh, clinic that, that questioned the limits of the, the theory. So in the theory, and I think one of your um, guests recently, I think it was Carlos Padron, he was saying a book doesn't respond to you, right? Like when you are engaging with the, with the um, book, but uh, a practice responds to you, right? And forces you to constantly revise your stand, right? It's, it's, it's almost like um, it forces you to deal with a non-sexual relationship in a way, right? Like uh, the non-sexual relationship uh, in the sense that um, we are, recently I presented, um, a text in Tucumán, Argentina, in a, in a seminar, a beautiful seminar. Um, it was a symposium organized by the Seminario Psicoanalítico in Tucumán. And I talk about love and the non-sexual relationship. And I was talking about how um, the non-sexual relationship at the core is, is um, the reality that we enjoy alone right? Like love makes this substitution for the non-sexual relationship, Lacan says, but at the core we are alone in our enjoyment. So then when you are practicing socially outside of the books, I mean obviously the books also can tell you, yeah, yeah, they can castrate you a little bit, can, can, can um, highlight your, your uh, difference, but it's very different when you are uh, establishing um, an exchange with another body. You know? So uh, in, in that sense, I, I think that we have plenty, plenty of uh, productions of uh, kind of, of the order of representation. Let's say we go with the theory of discourses of Lacan, which I am completely into that these days. Um, we are in the, in the kind of axis of representation, mostly, right, with our papers and, and with our, um, yeah, kind of uh, pr cultural productions. But maybe we need to go a little bit more in the production that involves uh, bodies, right? Like involve bodies and being able to um, create something of a more collective um, nature. The problem, and, and that was a little bit like uh, what I was referring before of the um, limits of psychoanalysis, is that at the level of the individual, psychoanalysis is an emancipatory project because yeah allows to break up the alienation i mean at certain point right we we still are alienated by language by the fact that we speak we have to alienate ourselves but allows you to um develop the singularity um that that allows you to break with uh you know the burdens of your own tradition breaks those fidelities that make you human to uh, transform that resonance into something of singularity but at the level of the social we need to create solidarities right we need to create some sort of um, identifications if you want and we know uh, from the theory of discourses that every time that we uh, disrupt, let's say, the order, 
another master signifier kind of uh, reinstates itself. So that's, that's kind of the limit of, uh, of human subjectivity in groups and the limits of uh, psychoanalysis, right? Like psychoanalysis, its power is singularity and, and um, yeah, kind of separation as possible and the, the social requires the contrary like let's get let's stick together but it's still i think that um there are many um endeavors by um psychoanalysts that are uh trying to create practices among others from a psychoanalytic perspective um i have a friend in mexico that has uh Kind of a clinic uh, sort of a community for people with autism it's called something like practice among others and um, so yeah it's it's maybe about creating singular communities right trying to preserve that um, that specific um, uniqueness of the of that group but it's still it's still it's it's aporetic no it's aporetic uh trying to approach uh with uh, with the radicality of psychoanalysis uh a social endeavor it's it's always aporetic it's it's always trying to break down what has been congealed right upsetting what has been congealed to recreate so it's 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 unstable in in a way you know the field of uh, the the social and the complexities that we carry already in built in in subjectivity it just gets um to another level of complexity when we when we um combine one plus one plus one in the social you know so yeah i wonder if somehow it can help us to come together in a different way like in a better way instead of like constantly enacting and reenacting these kinds of behaviors and patterns that we have been stuck in like collectively like instead of being so reactive we could like have a little space from it and like come together in a more intentional or thoughtful way totally totally you know i'm thinking about um the feminine turn right the feminine turn in the world uh, i mean i i feel that uh, i mean when important to to clarify right when we talk uh in lacanian terms about the feminine and the masculine we are not talking about uh, anatomy we are not talking about penis and vaginas they count as well but uh it's more like the linguistic position regarding the phallus, right, in, in, the, in the set of masculine and in the set of feminine. So I think the set of feminine, which is an open set, allows precisely for what you are saying, right, to, to kind of um, do about without the, the oppression of the phallus. The phallus is necess it's a necessity, right? They can tell us it's a necessity because we need to be able to speak. And um, so that the phallus as, as the sign signifier that allows to, to establish this uh, uh, change of other signifiers um, and, and signifies the lack that is there. Uh, that allows to to well obviously to communicate and whatnot, but that easily becomes this rigid, cold, dry, right? The feminine is is uh, it's that space that you can find in gentlemen, you can find in in women, right? Like uh, this this approach that is more flexible, more porous, wet rounded right like much more um open to uh be silly to have uh, humor to just relax people this is not the, the end of the world right like just just be a little bit more human breaking semblances right semblances of um this should be this way and why no like maybe we can do it a little bit different and kind of uh 
um, allow those other semblances to emerge. No, semblances is it's a, a requirement of uh, social bonding, right? Like we we sort of um, uh, create certain etiquette uh, about certain um, uh, lie, if you want, no, like. Um, to, to establish some sort of social bonding, but they, this can be a little bit more flexible, right? Like more, um, yeah, um, protein, moving with, uh, with other flows, right? That are not only um, this kind of, this is the only way, the patriarchal way. Rigid. Mm -hmm. And, I, and <laughs> I, you know, I also think that, um, I mean, as a feminist, uh, my understanding of um, feminism is that it comes from a deep love of men. Like I love my father, my husband, my brothers, my friends, my colleagues. And, and I see the, the difficulties that uh, the, the, now that women and the feminine is taking a little bit more space in the world, this creates, uh, I don't know if that's what uh, other people call the um, uh, men fragility. I, I think specifically I'm talking about in the practice, in the, um, with analysis, how men got so accustomed to, to be these powerful figures, figures in the, in the um, uh, social, and when the phallus no longer holds the space that used to hold, then it's almost like a, I don't exist or, or, or a lot of insecurity. So I, I think that um, the feminine also can, can incorporate um, some uh, compassion, some leadership that um, opens other spaces that are kind of more um human more funny no <laughs> yeah and i feel like the internet's done that too with just like allowing people to have more of their personality present instead of being like this is this is my work persona and this is the rest of my life you know now everything's more integrated right 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 yeah um which is funny i have uh, mixed feelings about it because um yeah, as a practitioner, right? Like, um, and also because I'm always aware that, I mean, I'm, I'm bothered by my, my narcissism and I'm bothered by others' narcissism. That's the way it is, right? Um, and then uh, if you post, uh, it's again, the non-sexual relationship, right? You are alone in your Jewish sons, my dear. So, but, but it's still, if you want to do it, no, go for it. It's, it's, a, it's a way of... Uh, breaking these semblances precisely of um it, it should be like all kind of uh serious and exclusively which a lot of people still obviously abide by um especially i guess from other in my experience i don't know um you but uh a lot of uh people from other psychoanalytical schools sometimes i call them the other church <laughs> Um, I think that uh, sometimes, um, yeah, I have noticed much more uh, difficulty to uh, be in social media, for example. The Canadians have more fun, I think. <laughs> we are more fun, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of more. It's interesting because being such a um, such a rigorous theory at the same time allows you much more flexibility in the assertion of your singularity no of your desire yeah exactly and i i feel like you can't you know if you're gonna espouse the theory you kind of have to live you know let your psychoanalysis and your practice and your own analysis like free you up and be able to be yourself it's like how how do psychoanalysts go through these analyses for their training and then end up in these like rigid dogmatic positions where they're like emanating whatever they believe they're supposed to be as the master or the one who's supposed to know right like how do you i don't understand how you do that after 
being in psychoanalysis. <laughs> totally, totally. But you know, at least for, for me at the beginning, that was sort of the, the image that I got of uh, what psychoanalysis was about, this sort of rigidity and this sort of uh, self-importance and kind of mystical uh, kind of holding of uh, what is the signifier and what is reasons, right? But then um, kind of, uh, I think that that is an effect of the group thinking of certain organizations, right? That, that present this semblance as a semblance of power as a semblance of privilege, as a semblance of um, um, distinction, no? And, um, and then after so many years of studying, uh, of analysis, uh, well, it's, uh, it's not about that. It's not about that at all. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, how, how do you, um, how do you maintain your radical desire well, like an, an, as an analyst and uh, your radical desire too in the, in the clinic, in the consulting office, you know, like um, how um, you, just, you just go for that radicality of the word and the limit of the word to, to make that flash of the subject in the couch to shake to get disturbed to move to right to to get out of the same rut of uh in which the signified change harness our bodies no so it's kind of a uh shaking uh that and um i always get very surprised for example when um i get um lapses in my in my interventions or when I dream with uh, an analysis right like uh, how how do you use this material then for example in other modalities for example the phenomenological they they establish this dialogue like uh, my perspective the analyst say is this like the signification right what I do, for example, in the consulting room, if I get um, a kind of a lapsus, I acknowledge it. And I said, well, the unconscious came out on my side. What do you make out of it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like, a, um, instead of making it about my own counter-transference as it could uh, say before, no? or, or that it says in other modalities. So it's kind of a, yeah, having a lot of respect for the unconscious and how it manifests, you know, it's, uh, I think that's, that's uh, crucial, right? Like letting it, letting it transpire because uh, the unconscious is not something that belongs to us, right? It's, it's something that it, we get plugged in, into these uh, like the big cloud of unconscious, which is this course, right? And then it just, it just speaks through us, no? Through our tradition, through our history. And then, yeah, just, just, um, it's, it's a fascinating field, no? It's, uh, sometimes I think, what would I have done if I couldn't dedicate myself to psychoanalysis? And, um, I could be a dancer probably, or I could be, a, I wanted to be originally um, a journalist, but I, I have very kind of disorganized popcorn thinking. <laughs> and then I was thinking, oh my God, nobody is going to watch my uh, reports because always I have been just jumping from like in free association pretty much <laughs> so i thought well no i don't think i'm gonna be good at that so and dancing is good because then it's all about movement right like um i find a little bit difficult when um talking in these sort of uh mod modalities uh the, by virtual connection to be still <laughs> i have to be kind of in this chair or whatever, right? Like just, just uh, 
almost like uh yeah the body wants to be alive as well right probably i have undiagnosed add <laughs> but um but all good <laughs> didn't you say that you wrote something or worked on psychoanalysis and dance as well um well i i did um uh what i call the flamenco derive it was an event uh, organized in sfu institute for the humanities um with two very good friends, uh, Samir Gandesh and Amjo Hal, uh, who are kind of my partners in crime in all these kind of uh, events that has to do with a little bit of performative aspect. So that, that um, was in an event that was commemorative, commemorating the um, situation is international. So there were uh, scholars from different um, kind of uh, parts of the world from different perspectives. And, and I was thinking, okay, if, if the situation is, is about creating a situation and disrupting, uh, what about creating a derive within the um, conference room? So I invited um, five, six of my very good friends, uh, dancers, flamenco dancers, and one singer. They were five dancers and one singer. Um, and then uh, I was reading and kind of to punctuate the, let's say, the little aphorism or the little paragraph, um, they will dance to kind of interpret whatever aspect we were referring in that uh, part. And it was beautiful because, I mean, I did all the text, but, um, but the choreography was um, collaborative. And it was one of the best experiences because it was just so um, beautiful to see how it just took life on its own and everybody was like contributing, everybody was doing their own um, uh, kind of um, uh, choreography and we, we did a choreography together at the end. It was very short, the, the, that part. Now I'm thinking, we should do it bigger now in another occasion, but um, yeah, but it was, uh, it was one of the best experiences that I have had in terms of bringing this aspect, because also it's bringing the feminine in a way, no? Not, not only all of us were um, kind of women in that derive, and I got very interesting uh, comments. For example, there was a guy 16 years old and a guy 70 years old that they, they told me, because when I was reading my colleagues, the dancers were kind of dancing a little bit around and, and kind of, you know, kind of in the face of the people and just doing these kind of very elegant, powerful movements. And, um, and then uh, two people, I, I told you, the 16 and the 70, told me that they felt a little bit afraid of the power of, of, of the women, right? Like, uh, just, so I, I, I liked uh, that uh, aspect of uh, kind of disrupting a little bit of the way energies get uh, distributed by someone is talking, blah, 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 and then, right? And so, so kind of moving a little bit the, the energy. It was really fun. We had a lot of fun and um, we got very good, um, um, yeah, sort of uh, comments and interesting comments. So, so yeah, it's bringing this, um, also this disruption no? through, through um, movement, through dance. And what's the psychoanalytic scene like in Vancouver and what led you to create Lacan Salon? Right, well, there was nothing, my dear. Uh, Lacan Salon is the, is the first, um, yeah, I shouldn't say what, there was nothing. I, I will uh, <laughs> uh, elaborate. But um, the Lacan Salon is the first English-speaking um, group in Canada, and um, Lacanian. Mm -hmm. There were other um, modalities of uh, psychoanalysis, mainly uh, from the object relationships. And I was uh, working with them uh, since I kind of came to Canada. I was the first thing that I did, like trying to connect to other colleagues. And then I was participating in their study groups. And, but obviously there was a certain clash in terms of um, conceptual 
approach to what is to be kind of what is uh, to be doing psychoanalysis, what is the power of the clinical. Um, so I was finding a little bit frustrating that it was, yeah, kind of very much, um, uh, yeah, more in this uh, interpret over-determined interpretation, that sort of thing. Mm. I mean, uh, I have good friends uh, from that group, still my good friends, but, um, but then um, I, I couldn't find any Lacanian group here. So then I, I started to work with, uh, with a friend Michael, and then we created like sort of a program for for a study group. And then uh, the first time that we met, uh, there was uh, Clint, Paul, and Jesse, and many other people. But these were like uh, the four of us just consolidated. And my friend Michael, he just Michael McConkey, he just disappeared after two uh, sessions. So that way, just uh, it became uh, my idea was like let's invite. Um, academics but also clinicians but um, the thing with clinicians has um, been difficult to advance because uh, the the Lacanian theory is as we know Vanessa is very um, challenging if you haven't kind of uh, studied that in your undergrad let's say or, or if you haven't been in that sort of uh, modality of uh, I don't know, more like uh, heavily philosophically based in your formation. So many times that I have invited good friends, they don't stick around because they, they say that the, the talks uh, or the discussions are very much um, um, more theoretical. Now with the, with the new modality, we have the opportunity to meet by Zoom there's a lot of other clinicians that have been participating and then that has opened something that I, I was expecting for 11 years in 2007 uh, to happen, that, that there was uh, more uh, discussions of, uh, you know, uh, insights that come from the practice. It's different, as we were saying before, that come just from the engagement with books. It's a, it's a reality, right? Like, obviously, mm -hmm. we need both, right? Because, for example, I find that um, in my experience, the, the, the people who are engaged in the academia, the, the, that have a scholar work around uh, Lacanian uh, theory, they can bring some insights about the social that we wouldn't have necessarily figured out from the practice of uh, one by one. So I think it's, uh, it's an important um, connection no? to, to have um, in, in kind of uh, from both uh, modalities. But I still think that we should um, uh, sort of, mm, I, I was going to say privilege, but that's not the word that I want that we should really emphasize the importance of practice. So psychoanalysis doesn't become banal, the banalization, right? Like uh, they, then we see unconscious everywhere. And then we see, like then we engage with the uh, diagnostic, uh, what are the consequences, right? Like what are the, the, the consequences of those critics? Because for me, psychoanalysis is consequential by definition, right? It has, to have some sort of impact on a on a body, no? I have to wonder if a lot of uh, philosophers using psychoanalysis or like film theorists, if they've been in analysis, and because I know at least for me, like seeing it at work in my own life completely made everything I had read make sense. Like, of course, I had been reading psychoanalytic texts, mostly Freud, um, before I was ever in analysis, and then once I started things that seeing things that play in my own life I was like oh that's what he's talking about but I really don't feel like you can totally get what they're talking about and unless you see it at play in your own life so I wonder if um a lot of academics are actually in psychoanalysis I had kind of assumed so but then I heard recently that uh, she was told like this is really great to use philosophically and theoretically but like no one does this anymore in practice <laughs> and then I was kind of horrified to hear mm -hmm. that 
<laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, I, I remember like, uh, for example, one interview uh, to Jean Cobjet uh, from a um, friend from Mexico, uh, Benjamin Meyer. Uh, they interview her and they asked the question about, have you ever been in psychoanalysis? And she was like, no, and I don't intend. And that doesn't make any difference. And I was like, okay, I really think that it, I mean, I admire profoundly her work and she has opened for me many um, insights. However, how do you reconcile the, the, that this is like a heuristic method at the core, right? It, it, it is um, kind of, thought to be um, sort of a, a strategy or a tactic to uh, understand and shift problematics, no? And that requires that you sort of uh, engage in, in the one by one in the, your subjectivity to, um, yeah, kind of uh, upset the things that are around you. And more so if you don't count yourself in the critique that you are doing through psychoanalysis, then what is the point? Where is the subject of the unconscious? The subject of the unconscious is the one that is um, engaging, right? It's, it's almost like psychoanalysis is by default a uh, full-time autoethnography, right? Because you are always constantly revising, reflecting on what are the subject matter that you are engaging in what way is um yeah is is impacting you and sort of trying to to measure the temperature of the discourse that is in you no and if you don't have uh, the experience of psychoanalysis well it's kind of a uh, auto analysis doesn't exist really like we know the freud um you know went uh to uh, Fleece, right? Dr. Fleece was uh, his analyst in a way, the, the one that had the subject supposed to know. And, uh, and well, Lacan with Lowenstein, right? Like they, there's always this need of uh, passing um, your, let's say your discourse to another because otherwise um, castration never actualizes. I mean, we are all being castrated on ongoing basis at many levels, but it's different when it is um, uh, dialecticized in a space where you can really um, process that that thing. No? I think that's um, that's a, 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 a big difference, and um, yeah. So I, I really think that uh, the the practice of psychoanalysis should be an important point when you are approaching a critique from a psychoanalytic perspective, right? Yeah, I, I remember, yeah, go, 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 no, go. say something. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I wanted to uh, sh uh, switch gears to talk about Freud in Netflix because that's a must in your program. <laughs> but no, but I'm interested to hear about what you wanted to say. Oh, but I love Freud and Netflix. I was going to say, um, I like that you brought up the aspect of tradition as well, because I'm also really into um, working with ancestors and thinking about your ancestral lineage. Um, and I feel like when I was listening to you talk about tradition, and I, I started thinking more about um, working with ancestors as kind of a way of also like, making making more of the unconscious conscious and that you're like understanding more of like the social dynamics and social history in your own personal lineage but also like in your country of origin or place of origin or just as the societies of the world have interacted as a whole over time and how how that's kind of similar to thinking about how we like mine our personal unconscious like in a Freudian sense but more in a collective way that's really interesting yeah no absolutely because uh I mean, what, what I am uh, studying with the research is the, the, as well, the transgenerational transmission of trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that, um, that the, every generation has to carry the, the past generation's uh, traumas and 
and kind of symptoms. And when you connect in, in that way, um, there's kind of op opens knowledge, right? Um, I guess it depends on how uh, one conducts that sort of uh, encounters. But, but uh, coming from traditions, for example, the, um, the First Nations here, the indigenous peoples of diverse uh, kind of uh, a, in kind of lineages, they they have beautiful ways. Part of my research involved uh, working with uh, with indigenous people here, and it was the greatest um, uh, insights that I had. Uh, I had one uh, that is part of my ethnography methodology, in which I. Uh, I'll tell you about it because it's kind of uh, beautiful. You know, I come from um, from Mexico, and in the majority of the population in Mexico is mestizo. It's like a, a combination of European and indigenous. I myself, I'm, I'm mestizo, mestiza. But um, when I uh, met with the council of uh, elders, they were like probably ten, eleven elders. And uh, I just felt really honored. And guess what happened? I just burst into tears. I just burst into tears, like, like incontrollably, because I, at the moment that I had to introduce myself, I, I don't know my roots. I don't know my roots of the indigenous. I know my roots of Spain, what region, my dad my grandparents, but I didn't know that part. And what I experienced was shame. You know, it was, um, it was so intense uh, when I just sat there and I just cried. Like I was like not planning to do that. You are doing your PhD research. You present in a very professional way. Like I just, I just, it, it was an event for me, you know, like mm -hmm. it was just like a, what just happened here? So I kind of uh, walk through my tears with them and saying that uh, in all my analyses, because I had three analyses with different uh, analysts, uh, I've never ever, it was forecluded literally my ancestry from the indigenous side, because obviously that's the, the leftover of coloniz colonization that was forcluded. That was not out for grabs or out for discussion in any way. So it was um, it was quite uh, uh, learning, like very humbling at the same time. Like how um, these sort of uh, engagements in outside your kind of uh, your same sort of. Uh, forms of knowledge can provide you right it's like opening something that it is in you that you didn't know it's it's in you so i think that uh that's uh the, the these forms of uh older traditions of uh engaging with the past are kind of very very rich as well no and um and how can we hold them uh, with respect instead of denigrating other forms of uh, knowledge or accessing knowledge no? that is not the rational or the analytic. No? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That was beautifully put. Thank you for sharing. Is there anything else you wanted to be sure to mention? The Freud Netflix. <laughs> Let's talk Freud Netflix. Let's talk. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, um, it was funny because uh, when I saw the, the first uh, previews, uh, I even was um, a little bit like a call out by Mary Well, uh, very, very wisely of her saying, well, don't judge the, the show before you watch it. But having said that, I was right in my assessment because, you know, I like uh, the aesthetics. I, I was satisfied with the aesthetics of, uh, you know, like kind of this um, uh, very uh, sexy, sensual uh, visuals, no, and uh, and all the the sexual story of Freud that was interesting and whatnot. But the writing, 
I was expecting something like, I don't know if you have seen Dark, like the series of Netflix. Uh, it's a German um, uh, production that is in Netflix. It's called Dark. And it's, it's um, written and directed by a couple. I don't remember their names at the moment. But the writing there is like, whoa, like super, um, you know, very, very uh, intellectually challenging and very rigorous in, in that sense. So, yeah, just, just takes you to force your, it's mind-blowing in a way. So I was uh, expecting that sort of writing, right? Like I, I also was expecting a Freud that was more central uh, in, well, but it's just the first uh, season. Let's see the, pre the following ones, no? But I was expecting, uh, yeah, something more, um, more Lacanian maybe, because I, I thought that it was, it was more like between Jungian or something like that, right? Like with this, um, these bodies with a kind of more like totemic uh, something like they or they I don't know those those more like uh, uh, different um, yeah sort of uh, focus instead of uh, more about you know like uh, the yeah the dead drive is there but probably in in a in a yeah, I was expecting more, more of different thing, but um, um, let's see, let's see. Yeah, okay. I, I also, yeah, I also was thinking that it was a little bit uh, banalized, banalized. Uh, that you know, psychoanalysis is very dif difficult. No, like uh, sitting with someone that is in suffering or that is in re compulsive repetition and then it's it, it's uh it's something that yeah it's uh it requires lots of moderation and patience to to disrupt and and i i i thought that it was like a little bit hollywood to hollywood <laughs> It was kind of ridiculous, but it was still fun. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> the next yeah. one they're doing is Deleuze and Guattari. Right, right. And it's entertaining. <laughs> it's entertaining. Let's give it that. Yeah, it's a, yeah. But it didn't left like a mark on me. <laughs> now, when they had the like full on blood orgy episode, I was like, okay, now they've gone too far for me. But I was like, of course, I'll keep watching it to the end. It's Freud. And then I, I liked the end when, he, when they left it with him, like having his first analysis on the couch. And I was like, okay, they won me back over. But the blood right. orgy, they, they had lost me for a minute. <laughs> it's like, that was too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And hopefully he will go to, um, like the, the season will go up to when he is in London. No, I, I hope. That would be fun. Yeah. I think we need it now that we're all stuck at home all the time. <laughs> it was a really How are you doing with the it? beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's fine. I mean, I was working from home anyway. I have like my offices in my house anyway. So it hasn't been that different for me in that respect. Yeah, and my yeah. husband also works from home. So we are just yeah. here all the time anyway. So the only thing that's different. Not, we just don't go out as much, I guess. That's about it. Right, right, right. Yeah. In Stockholm, you are, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a beautiful city. I was there long ago. And have you been in Gotland? Not yet. Oh, I no. love that. I've yeah. been here two years now. Oh, And one, nice. almost one of them has been the pandemic. So. <laughs> I know. It's almost over the year, right? Like we started in March and such a, a strange year no like uh you know what i was thinking about covid particularly um the way uh love and the non-sexual relationship is actualizing um i hear very repeatedly in my practice um the difficulties of uh meeting people right not everybody wants to meet uh, people on apps but now is the only, pretty much the only way because of the restrictions of social congregations. And then it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult situation. The other thing that I hear is that um, being in the same space all the time with uh, your loved ones is like uh, 
driving nuts some people, no? Like, um, I, I was feeling not too good to be all the time uh, working remotely. But then in June the 1st, I started to go back to my office and I just feel much better to see people. Yeah, but obviously I had to change the whole uh, dynamic and all the uh, sanitizing and the mask for the debate or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, but I was thinking about how the, these will impact um, opportunities for love, opportunities for, um, for, for being, you know, feeling the warmth of uh, connection with others. It's, uh, it's uh, obviously you can establish this warmth through certain uh, meetings over Zoom or whatnot. But um, yeah, but it's it's uh, it's a difficult time, no? For for a lot of people, it's kind of certain dark times. Yeah, my friend Manya Seinkel and I were talking about uh, technology and this kind of interfacing through Zoom as like the new like missed sexual relation. Like there is no sexual relation. It's like we're are we really looking at each other? You know, like how is this like gaze going? Is like we're connecting but not really. It's like something's always missing. It's really similar in a way. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there's uh yeah, I I um edited a little um journal for the SFU Institute for the Humanities with the Lacan Salon with my friend Ted Byrne. He's a wonderful poet and he taught me so much about uh, kind of editing. And in that, uh, it's coming soon. It's coming, it's in contours is the journal. And there I, uh, my, my paper was uh, the malaise of the distant bodies and the insistence of the letter. So what I am uh, saying there is that um, uh, we are kind of losing our bodies in a way, no? Like uh, the whole uh, modality, this, the whole social bonding is becoming a little bit more obsessional, right? In terms that it's mailing your head, mm -hmm. even though you cannot uh, disembody it, but the other body is not there, right? Like to, to kind of um, uh, bounce your energy, your, your gaze, etc. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of... Uh, it's it's a little bit of a loss that we are going through and then the insistence of the letter is that we are like so into doing things to almost like to uh create um phantasmatic vaccination against the virus right like with our words with our almost like a, a defense right like uh insisting with uh, letters no that um yeah, it's it's a it's a very strange time. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Hilda Fernandez Alvarez. For more Please visit the text accompanying this episode for links to Lacan Salon as well as many of the topics discussed. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
of your be the true I'll always self. be a word man. It's no calligraphy for French girls. He's closely, I'm quite Why sure. One of my favorites. A spiral. A serpent. A rock's It's not sacred, okay? It was situated and matter. The third mind is when two minds collaborate. Catered to the mysterious, the unusual, and sometimes the supernatural. A program of because you are here. And let me quote to you, young officer. The third mind is when two minds collaborate. No two Brian minds and ever come collaborate together in this manual elementary, creating is more creative and writing illusion techniques that traces a series of such collaborations. Reasons why the artistic world can't operation rewrite that These experiments started not on tape recorders, but on paper. In 1959, Brian Geisman said that writing is 50 years behind painting. to words on a paper. I'll always be a word man. It's no calligraphy for French prose. He's closely, I'm quite sure, one of my favorites. A spiral, a serpent, a is. It's not sacred, okay Eternal. with it, but we physical. Indeed, the final across the world blow, spiritual and physical. Sacrifice ourselves. Oh. Stop this cycle. Oh, Thanks yeah. again. I look well, continues to unfold. Have a lot of Representation of my spiritual. By the passerby, few know the kinds to become a master of your. By no fewer than a hundred, it seems to work more than those people are. Be the true self. Here is situated and. Become a master of your, 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 your